Episode 77, Mo Carrick, author of the books Fit Matters and Brave Space Workplace. I do feel like as I look in the rearview mirror, some of my pivotal moments have been those mistakes, you know, in hindsight, like those moments where you go, wow. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. As always, for links, show notes, and more, you can go to my website, go to markgraben.com slash mistake77. You'll also be able to enter to win one of two copies of Mo's books. So please go there to enter the contest. Again, markgraben.com slash mistake77. Our guest today is Mo Carrick. She is the CEO of her company, Momentum Inc. So I'll, I'll say first off, welcome to the show. And I guess I see where the name came from, right? Momentum. Awesome. Yes. Ha ha. Thank you, Mark. Wonderful to be here. No, it's 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 a great it's a it's a great name, and it's good that there's that um, connection. But uh, Mo is. Um, I you know, and it would be a mistake to not research beyond the LinkedIn headline. But the LinkedIn headline for Mo says she's a best-selling author, a consultant, a relentless optimist. So maybe we can touch on that a little bit. And beekeeper. Do you, do you mean that literally? I do mean that literally, although it's sort of funny to talk about it today because our hive died in the fall, um, which happens. You know, anyone who knows that they're knows about beekeeping, they, they sometimes don't make it. And we had some swarms last summer and they were too thin. So we are beekeepers. We're getting our bees coming up this spring, but right now we don't have any bees. So we're looking forward to starting again. <laughs> All right. Oh, gosh. Well, um, cause I didn't know if that was a metaphor, but I'm glad. Okay. That's interesting to know literally. And then here, here's a bit of a tease. We'll hear soon enough. I don't know if the mistake involves the bees, maybe not. No. Um, but Mo asks another provocative question that I think we can touch on later here in the episode is your organization fit for human life? And so if you look at the books that Mo has written, you'll see a connection around, um, maybe what you might call humane workplaces. The first book is called fit matters, how to love your job. And the second book is called brave space workplace, making your company fit for human life. And Mo also has a recently launched podcast called Work uh, Beyond HR. So a lot of interesting projects. So um, again, Mo, thank you for being a guest today. My pleasure. So um, whether it's beekeeping or not, um, we'll, 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 I won't drag this out any longer. The mystery and the suspense. Uh, what is your favorite mistake looking at your career and your work, Mo? Well, like many of your guests, Mark, I had trouble picking because um, I I do feel like as I look in the rearview mirror, some of my pivotal moments have been those mistakes, you know, in hindsight, like those moments where you go, wow, that took me to door number two instead of door number three. Um, but I think one of my favorites in terms of my own growth and also the magnitude of it, the difficulty of it, is that I went into business with my husband. 
So that's my favorite. That is the mistake. So tell us more about that and why, you know, why do you consider that a mistake? How, when did it start seeming like a mistake? Because yeah. there, there are general warnings around like, gosh, you know, that doesn't that that can be problematic going into business with a family member, yet alone a spouse. What what happened? Well, what happened with us was I am in a second marriage. So, you know, there's no easy way to say second marriage, first marriage, but the father of my children um, and I divorced. And a few years later, I remarried my my husband um, and we had two different consulting firms. So I had momentum. He had his own firm. And when we married, we decided that that was wonderful. We loved working together in the room. We didn't um, envision merging our firms. He had a business partner. And a few years into the marriage, we started thinking, gosh, you know, we're kind of competing with each other, you know, in our markets. And wouldn't it be interesting if we did merge? So we hired a coach, you know, as people like me do. We wanted to walk our talks. We hired a dear friend and colleague who interviewed us both and and uh, came back with some recommendations. And he said, don't do it. <laughs> and we ignored why, him. Why? Why, why not? Or why, what was the recommendation? Why not? The recommendation for him was that he heard, apparently in the interviews, he heard us both speak to how important it was for us to succeed in our marriage, right? It was the second marriage for both of us. We had come through divorce, four children in between the two of us, tough, tough times. You know, divorce is, is not easy for anyone. And we were very happy to be in a loving relationship and very committed to, you know, working that out. And he sort of said, I feel like because of the way you both roll, that if you put all your eggs in the basket of the business and combine it, that you're going to end up putting unnecessary strain on the business, you know, and on the marriage, really. Uh, Yeah, both. Um, Yeah, yeah, on both. And we just kind of, we were arrogant enough to be like, oh, no, you know, we've got this. (laughs) You know, we can do this anyway, even though we paid him for his there, input. And we didn't there, well, I was going to say there, there's a grand tradition I'm sure you'll recognize of, of somebody hiring a coach and then not following if the coach is one, the type who gives advice. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which was what we had oh. asked him to do, you know, and I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll help with the suspense. We did not uh, make it in business together. We merged the practice and then we actually unmerged the practice about four years later. So um, he's not in the business anymore. He works for one of my partner firms, which has been wonderful. And that process, you know, getting getting into the business partnership, discovering it wasn't working, and then finding a way to get out of it gracefully was um, was hard, but so informative uh, for me. So That's you unmerged the companies, but the relationship, the marriage is still merged. Marriage is still strong. Um, probably we we talk often actually that we feel so grateful for the for the what happened in the marriage as a result of that brave decision because he is much more fulfilled in his career and I feel um, very fulfilled in mine and I feel you know competent and grateful to have a primary love relationship that's really working and um, so yeah it was a brave and hard decision but a good one. So and within those four years was there a point where it was fine and then some problems started popping up or was from, was there, was it, you know, the case there are some mistakes where we kind of have an inkling from the beginning of like, Oh no, what, but, but, but we're stubborn or we said, so we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll keep like, what, what, what was the dynamic over those four years before deciding yeah. then to unmerge the companies? I love that question because I actually, in hindsight, you know, like the rear view mirror tells us this, I felt the mistake pretty quickly. 
um, early on when we decided to merge the firms, we had, I was coming up on, and emerging the firms is probably too strongly stated because what happened was he joined my firm. He kind of exited his firm and joined my firm. And my firm, right around the time we made the decision, my firm was coming up on its 10-year anniversary. We're now coming up, this year's our 20th anniversary. And um, I, we wanted to have a big party. So we had a big celebration and a wonderful, you know, evening of, of awards and things. And that event was painful and hard. He was, I think, noticing like this was, this had been my firm and he was now a partner in that firm. But what did that look like? So, you know, we ignored it, but that was one of the first feelings of like, oh, this feels, you know, hard. The name of the firm has my name in it, you know? And even though he was very, you know, he tries to work hard as we all do on his humility. And he was like, no, that doesn't bug me. You know, there still were some real challenges around gender dynamics. What does it mean about identity? And as we got into actual work with clients, some of that began to really rear its ugly head. And we had a few sales meetings. I remember it was about two years in when I started to feel like, okay, this is really not working because we were in the same room making a pitch and it was almost like we were competing, you know? Um, And when your partner's in the same firm and you're in the same room and you're competing, you're like, this is not, you know, this is not going to work. So that's when I started sort of saying what was true for me, which was like, I'm not sure this is working, but it took us another two years to kind of figure out, okay, what will work. And I should add the backdrop. My husband has survived two very bad cancers. And it was in the middle of our business partnership that he that he was diagnosed the second time around. And so there were multiple levels of strain um, around, you know, his difficulty actually working and the primacy of my income. And so it wasn't just the fact that we were in business together, but it was definitely, um, definitely something where we said, you know what, I think this decision stems, you know, some of the, the challenges we were facing. Yeah. I mean, and do you remember, did did you bring this up first or did he, or was it some sort of simultaneous recognition? No, it wasn't simultaneous. I'm the one who named it first. And that was hard. I'll never forget when I did it though, Mark, because we had, um, we had retreated ourselves to do some business planning and we were having fun visioning what was possible. Um, But our stories, you know, have you ever done a vision board? I've not done one. I have a, a, a colleague and friend of mine who has a vision board and I've seen hers and she coaches other people through it. I'm, I think I'm going to ask her um, to go through that. So short answer, no, I haven't done one, but I know well, what you I, mean. Yeah, I hadn't done one either, but we, a friend of mine who's also a consultant had recommended it and I thought this would be fun. So we had each created vision boards and then we looked at the two together and I noticed that like our personal life visions were very consistent, but our business visions were very different. And we decided to take a break. So we took a walk. And on the walk, I just realized I was like, I have to tell the truth. Like, I don't think this is working. And I did. And he was very angry at first and very scared, I think. And but it was a long walk. We probably walked, I don't know, we probably walked eight or nine miles. And by the end of that walk, he was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I think I hear what you're saying. I think you might be right. He, he he didn't mis- misunderstand. I mean, to to hear a hear a spouse say this isn't working out. What do you right. mean by this? It was <laughs> right, clear. Exactly. That- I think I think I was clear. I was like, I want to talk about okay. business. You know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> to make sure that he wasn't too freaked out. <laughs> yeah. 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 But still, point. and I mean, I wonder the dynamics of how much of it was being um, married couple. 
versus any time two firms merge and you have two previous CEOs where now like are sometimes you know you have these awkward mergers of equals and like is that really true and then even sometimes there are co-CEOs and you wonder okay well is that really true like I wonder would, would is this type of thing that would just be difficult if it was a merger with um, a, a company where it wasn't your husband yeah, I I think I think it would have been a hard anyway. I mean, I think either way, I'm going to close my door that just got open. But I I I think it was definitely harder because of my husband and I, and you know what he had to give up and what I had to um, change about how we each thought about the business prior, which always happens in a merger or an acquisition. You know, what's the culture of this company? What's the culture of that company? Um, but I think it was exacerbated by our our fear you know one of the things we we really ended up agreeing strongly on on was that you know when you work for yourself and we're a small business you know my firm now has five employees I think back then we had three maybe plus us so five again Um, but all of our identity and our financial resources were in that firm and that felt a bit scary like all our eggs in one basket you know and um, if something goes wrong, and so we each had this this desire and drive to make the firm work, but but at the same time we were married and sharing all of our life experiences with all of our combined children, and it felt like just you know too much. And we ended up also, I would say, we talked about work all the time, all the time. And I started to feel like, where did the marriage go? We had promised each other we will not lose sight of the marriage because of the business, but we actually did. And we had to recalibrate around that, which was probably one of the biggest gifts. Uh, so, I mean, in a, in a way, it's a, a, a different mistake or a different lesson learned of yes. thinking about boundaries and proverbial hats. Am I wearing my colleague hat or my spouse hat? Yeah, yeah that's right. And it's hard to switch, you know, especially, I think, as entrepreneurs, when your identity is so strongly connected to your work. I mean, I guess for most people, their identity is connected to their work. But I think for us, um, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing, you know, the story there. And, um, you know, your your company momentum uh, is is here and, it, and it's going. And so if you could talk a little bit about the types of work that you do, and I'm sure this this ties in also with the book. What types of work do you do with organizations and um, how do you connect that to this question of, is your organization fit for human life? That seems like a, yeah. a meaningful question for you. Thank you. Yeah, it is. You know, I've been intrigued by this question of why do we work and also what makes us thrive at work for really my whole career. I've seen so many examples of workplace misery, you know, and I've been there myself. So the work we do is consultative. We do uh, where we provide coaching, we provide leadership development, team development and cohesion building. Um, I do keynote speak and lead workshops often. We also do quite a bit of work in the equity and inclusion realm, building cultures of belonging. Um, we have a signature program that's launching this year, which will be a cohort based program, um, called solving people problems. I would say the bulk of my work and of our work as a firm is how do we help leaders understand the very key role they have, um, in determining that their workplace brings out the best in their people every day, because we know, I mean, you know, this Mark from all the people you talk with people are what make companies great. 
And um, so if people are coming to work with 10% of their great stuff, um, they are suffering and, and the company isn't getting the full benefit of, of their, uh, their awesomeness. Yeah. And so when you talk about um, fit, how often would something that's seen as a people problem or it's a person problem, somebody who might seem like a quote unquote bad employee do you help people figure out when that's just a matter of fit? Is it bad fit for the role? Bad fit with the company? How, how do you help sort that out? Well, yeah, it's hard and it's hard. And yet what I feel is that the a people problem does not mean there's something wrong with the people involved, you know, because very often the people problem is related to a lack of clear structure a lack of capacity for courage. I noticed you had a few interviews ago, you had another dare to leap facilitator on your show. Um, I'm also a certified dare to leap. Okay. Yeah. That was uh, Sabrina Moon. Sabrina. Yeah. And um, and, you know, a a failure of having courageous conversations really can contribute to people problems. And so I do think you're right. I think rightness for role and even rightness for company, you know, in, in fit matters, how to love your job. My co-author and I, Cammy Dunaway really tried to look at, how can we determine fit from the outside? Because it's not really about fitting in, is it? It's kind of more about, is this right for me and am I right for this company? Um, and then on the leadership side, when we say fit for human life, for me, that's about how does the company activate um, the conditions in which the human being can thrive, the unique human being um, that's showing up to work every day. So I think you're right. I think it's not about fixing the people and making sure they fit or force fitting them. It's about saying what's happening here and how can we elevate, lift, and um, powerfully celebrate the gifts of the people. And if they're in the wrong job or they're in the wrong company, how can we help them gracefully transition to the place that's just right for them? Because I do believe there's a place for everyone. There's a place for everyone to work. Yeah. And um, I, I'm, I'm one who tends to look then at, as you put it, structure or what are some of the systems issues? Um, you know, sometimes companies don't look beneath the surface of they'll say, well, you know, somebody is a bad fit. Let's give them a graceful, generous exit. And then six months or a year later, oh, we've got someone else who's a bad fit. Like at what point do you, right. you know, at some point you've got to step back and ask, well, what's wrong with our hiring process or how are we not communicating effectively about the company in a way that would help people know if it's a good fit because nobody wants that situation as the employee or the employer of having the time and investment and then saying like, Oh, this isn't a good fit. Like you, you, you maybe can't prevent that all the time, but if there's a repeated pattern, um, that's, that's something to figure out and work on. And, and hence maybe they need to hire a coach. <laughs> right. Right. Or, a consultant who can help them look at their structure and their accountability structure in particular, you know, because as you have seen, um, the hierarchy, how we're organized makes a huge difference in terms of people's capacity to be elevated. And oftentimes what I see happen is that there's a lack of clarity. Um, you know, who do I report to? Uh, what does good look like? Um, and, and, how we organize people. And I'm not just talking about the boxes on the page, but I'm also talking about the lines of accountability, which in COVID-19 times have become even harder because we're working remotely, you know, so work has less transparency. Um, 
if we are not on on-site location. So how do we actually bring a tighter lens to saying, you know, who does what, who reports to whom, and how do we have transparency if that works? So the contract between the employee and the organization is is um, visible to everyone, you know, and we we know how to how to succeed in that space. And that is often about about the structure. Yeah. And when you talk about succeeding, and I love that phrase that you use of, you know, elevating people. Mm-hmm. And I, I, one of my influences, um, you know, kind of considered, you know, W. Edwards Deming, who was considered either a quality guru or a management guru, or whatever label you might put on him. He passed away, you know, 30 years ago. But, you know, in his work, you know, I think it's still really influential. One thing that stands out, he would say, um, the role of the leader is not to judge their employees. And so like this runs into some of the problems with like with annual reviews. An employee gets blindsided because they get this once a year judgment that you're underperforming. Like that's unfair or why would you wait so long to have that conversation? You know, Deming would say the role of a leader is not to judge but to help their employees perform well on a, on a more ongoing basis and you know, to me, that that seems like one way of, of framing elevating people. You should be coaching them and bringing them up instead of just waiting to give them a number on a performance review scale. Oh, that's so true. And Deming had so much right, you know, one of which was that some of the real greatness comes from the people who have the closest visibility to what's happening, you know, um, in an organization and, and being able to really believe that that's true and that everybody in the organization from the bottom to the top has a unique view of the business itself and what's best. Um, and that, you know, leaders who I think are highly effective are deeply listening um, to those voices and understanding how does, how does this person see it? And is there value um, in their point of view for the, the way that we're solving the problem? Um, as opposed to being what I think our historical models of leadership have become, which is that leaders are the answer giver or the hero who rides it <laughs> right, on a white right. horse. And it's like those models don't work, you know. So what does the new leader look like? That's why we call our new program the new hero's journey. It's like the new leader is capable of really leveraging the talents of their of their people. So when you talk about heroes, um, you, you would really like this book. One of my future guests um, Kim Barnes, she used to be a healthcare executive, and now she works in some healthcare quality improvement collaboration efforts. Um, but Kim wrote a book. The title is Beyond Heroes, mm. and the idea is what I think what you're saying. Instead of the leader being the hero who swoops in with all the answers, that leadership is a much more continuous process of developing your people and facilitating, and sometimes getting out of the way and let those frontline employees help prevent a problem instead of swooping in to be the hero. Well, yes. And I love your show because you're focusing on what I think is one of the biggest ways leaders inspire followership is that they own and name their own mistakes. They're willing to say, oops, you know, I didn't, I didn't know the answer to that. Um, or I made a, an error. And as soon as they do that, our loyalty to them, our willingness to follow them anywhere increases. It doesn't decrease; it increases. So, um, so absolutely, I can't wait to to hear more about her book. Sounds great. Yeah. So, and then one other thing, Mo, I wanted to talk to you about because um, you know there's a chance for, for for me to learn here, you know, continuously. Uh, I think another aspect of elevating people is looking within organizations. Um, how can we elevate um, you know people who don't have the privilege that you and I have? And so, you know, on, on Mo's 
bio, it says, I'm going to just read this because I you know, thought this was um, meaningful. Um, she says, as a white U.S. born heterosexual woman, Mo strives to use her privilege with grace to surface assumptions that interfere with teams and to explore systemic patterns. Mm-hmm. And so from that background, um, you know, when we think of elevating others who maybe have been, um, you know, um, discriminated against in different ways, we try to elevate others. What What are your thoughts? What have you learned about being an effective ally? Or is, I think to use your word grace, how can we be a more effective and graceful ally? Yeah, I think it's a work in progress. I mean, I, I do believe that it is for me a work in progress. I'm sure I'll be at this work until I leave this great earth. Um, but I think allyship, like many dimensions of leadership, starts with some self-awareness, understanding, you know, individual identity. One of the reasons I wrote that sentence in my bio mark is because I think that people like me often fail to to even notice or name our own identity dimensions that may give us access to systemic advantage or privilege. So, you know, for me, some of my identity cards that do that are that I'm white, that I'm able-bodied, that I was born in the U.S., that English is my first language. And so that gives me advantages that I didn't earn. They just came to me, (laughs) you know, and those are different than advantages I earned, like my master's degree and my years of hard knocks running a business. You know, those things have come from my effort, but those other things came just because I got the luck of the draw. And so it's important, I think, when we start being willing to look at ourselves to say, okay, so then what does that mean about how I show up for others who are different than me? So for example, I was just talking with a colleague about this today. He's a person of color. I'm white. My being willing to notice that and to consider the possibility that our lived experiences are different because of that honors and validates what we each are bringing to the table. And many of us are taught, for example, in the dimension of race, not to talk about race. We're taught to notice sameness more than we are difference. And I think that that needs to change. I think we need to be willing to say, oh, okay, this is the card I hold. This is the card you hold. What about that? Um, shapes how we show up. The other, well, yeah, I'll pause there because that's that's. I love your question. Yeah, no, but it's okay. No, if you if you please go on. You had another. Well, I was point thinking about ahead. the paradox of of that dynamic of sameness and difference that I was thinking about. One of my other favorite paradoxes, which is, it's not my fault and I'm responsible. You know, being able to, and th- this is a particularly strong one for me for white women who are kind of my people, right? Because I think white women. Um, often become, when they become aware, let's say, of their own inherited racism or heteronormativity or sexism, they often become what I would call um, shame-triggered or fragile around their reaction to it. And they sort of become empty vessels sometimes. Like all of a sudden, they turn to black and brown people and say, teach me everything you know about racism, which is not a bad thing. But on the other hand, that's exhausting for the black and brown people. So how do we as white women stay and one of the ways we stay centered is to say is to remind ourselves, you know, it's not my fault. I didn't contribute, for example, here in this country to slavery or to police brutality. I'm not perpetrating those crimes, but I'm responsible for finding a way to know and notice the way the systems that I navigate in are set up that might disproportionately advantage white people over brown people. And and when I do that, I become a good ally. But I think that that paradox helps us stay grounded mm-hmm. in that. 
And um, you're involved in an organization called White Men is Full Diversity Partners. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the organization and as uh, a white man who shares uh, shares the same privilege, uh, so I have male privilege. Um, what uh, you know? What, what are your thoughts around, or what, what have you learned about, or what would your advice be, you know, mm-hmm. for for a white man who wants to be a better um, ally for people of color, for the LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm. um, you know, to 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 be allies to people who are not like ourselves in in a lot yeah. of cases. I think. I think my suggestion, my advice, which you're asking for, which is so powerful, is to do exactly what you're doing, which is to look at your own identity, understand it, know it, think about what it means, because many of us with privilege haven't done that. And then I think the next opportunity is to become almost relentlessly curious about the experience of others and to really learn how to practice empathy You know, with that. I, I think when we do that, the world shifts on its access a little bit because access a little bit because we we are seen. Um, WFDP, the organization you mentioned, has been a partner of mine from the beginning. I actually um, began as a senior consultant for that firm the same year I started my firm. Um, they invited me to be a partner, and I declined because I was just launching my own firm. And that is also coincidentally, so it's back to my 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 most favorite mistake. That's the firm my husband joined. Um, when okay. we separated our businesses, he joined them as their VP of client experience. And that firm is founded by, it's, it's currently the two principals are two white men. It, um, and they were very impassioned based on what they noticed. And this was back 25 years ago, which was that most diversity and inclusion efforts in business, and in particular, they're working in the Fortune 100, Fortune 500 space, um, were targeting, those efforts were targeting women and, and minorities, and, and the white men were often left out of that process. And they felt way back then, like, if we leave the majority of the status and rank holders in corporate America out of the conversation, how are they going to be compelled to make systemic change? And and I just love that question. And I think that their work, um, which I'm privileged to be a part of, really helps all of us see ourselves sees our own see our own self-interest in that work michael kimmel who wrote angry white men talks about until white men can see some stake in equity they won't change so what is it that benefits people like you mark you know why would your work be better based on you being an ally and i'm sure you have awesome answers for that um i would point actually to uh, my wife as somebody who i've learned a lot from she recently um, wrote a blog post that was um, part of a series that um, uh, a colleague, friend of mine, organized, um, writing about issues, workplace issues related to um, diversity along uh, race lines and LGB, LGBTQ plus. I apologize for stumbling over that. Um, that's great. just me it's being a, a clumsy. <laughs> that's just my clumsy mouth. I mean, no disrespect <laughs> by saying that poorly. Um, but you know, my wife wrote, uh, I thought a very insightful blog post and, and she often listens to these episodes too. So she may very well hear this. Um, and I would say it anyway, even if she didn't listen, you know, she was talking about how, and I think as you framed it, Mo, and on, in your profile, similar language to what my wife used that every employee must feel included. It must be seen and heard. 
at work. And, and I would say, well, with my work in continuous improvement, yes, I, w- I would understand that. Everybody, the frontline people doing the work and everybody should have a voice. But then there's this element, and as you put it, everything that we do considers the lens of equity to level the playing field. And as my wife wrote in her blog post, and I'll, I'll link to this in um, the show notes, I'm going to kind of just paraphrase her lessons, that diversity, equity, and inclusion cannot just be an annual event for an employee resource group. It can't be um, a, a sporadic effort. It really comes down to what leaders are doing every single day. And as an executive, she tries to model behaviors and reinforce behaviors that are helpful. So she made connections, I think, to summarize her point. Um, it's, it's not just the right thing to do in terms of treating people with respect. It ends up driving better business results because when people are able to bring their full selves to work and they can contribute and they are heard, that means more ideas come up, more improvement happens, better business results follow. Yes, she's so right. She's so right. And the other piece that comes up for me, of course, is in the customer arena as well, because, you know, companies need to match their customers. And when I, if I see myself in a product um, in their portfolio and in how they brand themselves, I'm much more likely going to, you know, engage in that. I, I'm reminded years ago, early in my career, the Wilderness Guide, I worked for Outward Bound and Knowles. And back then, this I'll date myself here, Mark, but that was back in the 1970s and 80s. And there were very few women mountaineers um, and guides. And I had to buy my clothes that they were always for men. I had to retrofit them to fit my body, you know, my size. And I'll never forget when Patagonia, they were the first brand that came out with clothes that were custom designed for real wilderness use for women and in colors that women liked. I was doing the happy dance and I, and I am such a loyal Patagonia supporter even today <laughs> to today and I don't guide anymore but because I felt seen I thought gosh they get it like women go to the outdoors too and um, they were the first company in that space that really moved in that direction so I think that um, that there's a there's I agree with your wife there's a strong business case to creating a culture of belonging and people come to work um, fully activated which means they have better ideas they feel safe they have social capital and they can fully show up so maybe the final question for um, from the perspective of um, you know white male executives. When when uh, earlier Mo, you talked about having a stake. Is is yeah. that stake making the case that um, like some of this uh, may be new and uncomfortable and awkward for them, and and we should maybe lean into that. Um, there's risk we say the wrong thing, or we're well intended, or we're clumsy, but is the stake trying to help make the case of like, if you care about your business, this is good business. Is that the stake that might be, have you found that compelling? Yes, I think so. I mean, if you care about your business, yes. I also would say if you care about your group, this work makes sense for you. And and I'll just elaborate on them a tiny bit. I gave, I've given a couple of Ted talks and, and the most recent one was one that you might've seen when you were researching me, but it was titled um, Loving Men, Women's Role in Healthy Masculinity. And in that talk, I was trying to speak about a concern I have around the culture of men, especially the culture of white men today, which is that we got some issues. You know, highest gun violence, depression and anxiety, highest opioid use. 
um, the disenfranchisement we're seeing with political polarity in, in Europe and here. And so I feel as though there's also, in addition to it's better for business, which we know is true, better ideas, more creativity. It's also better for um, for human beings. And white men are included in that in terms of being able to bring full self to the dialogue and understand who am I and who am I with you and how does that impact how we show up so that we can all thrive, which um, is not the case right now in a variety of sectors. And, and maybe some of those other questions I think about is not, you know, not just who am I, but who do I want to be and how can I be a better version of myself? Is yeah. To me, there's a continuous improvement dimension where we could say continuous improvement starts looking in the mirror. Yes, absolutely. And you said it when you said, you know, we're going to make mistakes and we got to recover and move on. Absolutely. When we make a mistake, we say, I'm sorry, I can do better next time. We don't allow that to cause us to shut down. Just a few weeks ago, I used the term with someone that was racist. I did not know. I was in innocent ignorance. They educated me. I felt badly. I owned it. I got a great amount of information about what the word actually meant. And I won't use that again. Right. And I am okay. I'm okay. That doesn't make me a bad person because I said something racist. It makes me human. And because I, like you, were raised in a society that was built on some constructs that were racist, sexist, and all the other isms. So I think it's powerful what you're saying and the way we continuously improve is by sort of stepping into the danger a bit, being willing to do it imperfectly, and then circling back and saying, okay, how would we do it differently tomorrow? Yeah. Well, thank you, Mo, for you know sharing your story about your favorite mistake and for even there at the end sharing and being open about other mistakes because you know the point, as you said in in in, in those different cases, is learning from them and um, moving forward and uh, and being better. So thank you for setting that example and for sharing that with us. Uh, our guest today has been Mo Carrick. Um, she is CEO of Momentum Inc. Um, her books, again, are Fit Matters and Brave Space Workplace. Um, check out her podcast, Work Beyond HR, and her website, and I'll link to all of this in the show notes, is mocarrick.com. Um, so, Mo, thank you so much. It's been a really nice conversation. I, I'm glad you were here with us today. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate the invite. I can't wait to tune in to your next interview. Good job. <laughs> well, thanks. And, and we'll give thanks to our mutual friend, Jamie Parker, who was uh, an early guest on the episode for making the connection. So if you're listening, thank you, Jamie. We appreciate it. Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks again to Mo for being our guest today for show notes, links, and a chance to enter to win copies of two of her books, go to markgraven.com slash mistake 77. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.